0: Hello and welcome to Caravan Podcast, a show about Pakistan's startup ecosystem where we have intimate conversations with founders and investors driven to catapult Pakistan into the digital age. We'll discuss what it's really like to start a business, the highs and the lows, the setbacks, the comebacks, the lessons everything. I'm your host, as always, Ahmad Mia, partner at Caravan, a community-driven venture capital platform. Now, given the nascent ecosystem, there's a massive spread between the talent in the country and the resources that are available to support them. Our mission at Caravan is to close that gap by providing both capital and expertise at the earliest of stages. You can find more information about Caravan at www.caravan.vc. In this episode, I sit down with Amne Sheikh Faruqi, the co-founder of Polly and Other Stories, an e-commerce marketplace that connects makers and buyers across Pakistan. So without further ado, let's get straight to Amne.
1: So the story of Polly and, stories is, actually, and other stories is actually quite a long one. Um, uh, Angela and I uh, were friends, we met working in what's popularly called the NGO sector, or more more and certainly, the social development or not-for-profit sector mm-hmm. in Pakistan. Uh, we were both working on a large, very large USAID project at the time. This is uh, back in 2012, um, and you know that project was looking at six different sectors, and it was looking at 75,000 small producers across Pakistan within these six sectors, and looking at augmenting markets and incomes. Um, and we've been involved, like it was a really great project. I think we got to do some really impressive and interesting work. The results were phenomenal. Uh, the average income within the project um, trebled. And you know um, you know how development sector people measure these metrics, right? It's always about income troubling, yeah. gender rights and access to markets. And all the indicators were fantastic. We had great feedback from communities. Um, When the project ended, I had a baby. Like literally one month before the project ended, I gave birth. So I was kind of, you know, in a different phase in life. But Ange obviously was still very, very involved. And we kind of met maybe four or five months after the project ended. And we were talking about everybody who we thought had been super successful as a player or who we'd managed to get into the mainstream market or break into the market. And we were reflecting on that. And we realized that only 10%, just six months later, only 10% of those connections persisted. And obviously what I'm saying isn't particularly unique. I think this is a critique of these development projects. They're very project-based, they're very time-bound. They're very much based on achieving something today without necessarily looking at long-term sustainability. And it's easy to say something is sustainable at the time, but it's very hard to track it. There's there's a lot of issues. but we began to feel really, really sad about this, you know, because both of us at this point had been working for a decade each within what's called the economic empowerment space. Um, and we've met so many talented artisans, makers, entrepreneurs, uh, what you want to call them. I mean, there's so many names people use, cottage industry, uh, artisans, yeah. and we've got and, you know, craftspeople, traditional um, makers. And we began to feel really sad about this because a lot of these people we felt had been pulled out of that bottom chain where they, didn't, where they were dependent on an exploitative middleman and they were dealing directly with large players, including export markets. So we began to evaluate why they had fallen back, those of them that we did. And we did like an informal study. And we realized it was because the market tends to be, I mean, I think Pakistan's in a really interesting place in that way. The issue is obviously a global one, but Pakistan in particular is in a very interesting space because we're moving very fast towards becoming a fast fashion, mass-produced, mass-consumption kind of space, right? So we're headed where everybody else in the West is right now. They're looking back, or at least a small section of them, are beginning to look back and look at the impact that's had. But we're kind of like, okay, what? The, what does is this branded? Where can I buy it? Is it standardized? Is it something exactly like what my neighbor would wear? So we're valuing looking identical to an influencer on Instagram yeah. versus having something that has cultural or historic value. Meaning some, 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 some,
0: some susten- sustenance or some substance.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's definitely been around for a long time. But I mean, definitely since the 80s. But it's kind of really picked up pace since 2000 to the point where the market and how people shop and consume and understand meaning of Consumption has completely changed for our country, um, and that and that's obviously the case for most countries that are getting into the middle income kind of uh, bracket. But I think the impact in Pakistan has been that quite often the artisans struggle to keep up with trends. So you can train them really well, and which is why we realize a lot of development projects fail, not necessarily because of poor work or ill intent, but because they manage to train them in a particular time, and then that time changes quite fast. And I don't think. Uh, artisan fashion anyway, if you can call it that, is as seasonal as fast fashion is. So yeah. you don't have six seasons in artisan fashion. If you're making Appleek, you're making Apple League. You've been making it for decades and you make it a certain way. Um, so they struggle to say relevant or interesting to consumers. And we began to realize that while it's one thing and it's important, I still think it's an important piece of work to reach out to large buyers and mainstream markets, that 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 missing link was really just somebody who could bring audiences uh, all these incredible products that many people want to buy because conversely we would also hear from friends oh remember when you went to Faisalabad you brought me this or when you remember when you were in Bahawalpur you brought me this when are you going back and we would be like wow why can't you find that product in the market and we realized that a lot of products that people see as traditional and easily available are actually not very easily accessible to everybody Um, And that's how the idea started. We thought, okay, let's just set up this e-commerce platform where we bring all these small businesses together, and they can retail through that, and then everybody can access them, and they get a market opportunity or a livelihood opportunity, but consumers who are interested can continue to shop from them all year round without waiting for a fair or some kind of conference event where they're installed to happen when they can then go and buy But what was particularly interesting, and I think we didn't anticipate this for sure, is the feedback we got within a month of the launch, which is we had businesses. So in our mind, we thought we would be dealing with micro businesses, particularly those based in rural areas. But we got calls from Karachi, Lahore, Islamabad, from women who even had their own physical stores and had been around in the market for a long time saying, are you reversed elitist? And we were like, what does that even mean? And we're just like, do we have to be poor and live in a bind? For you to be interested in working with us so if i have a college degree and i live in a city but i do make by hand or i work with craftspeople why am i not somebody you want to work mm. with and we began to think about that quite deeply i think that was a very very important thing and i'm glad it happened to us so early is that most small businesses in pakistan do not have a platform uh, particularly I, I, no,
0: one thing though i think that is changing with instagram and social media
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I am talking about five years ago. I should have dated that. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's always important. And five years, lots has changed. Lots has changed. Uh, but this is towards the end of 2014 when we were developing this idea. Uh, we worked on it 2015, launched it 2016. And, you know, at that time, I think this idea of ev- people did have Facebook pages. I won't say they didn't, but the traction or this idea of how to use the tool. Instagram was not as big a force as it is yeah. today it wasn't as, as um, obvious. So I think it was interesting. So we grew quite fast. I think within six months, we'd almost doubled in size in terms of the people we were serving. Um, and then we began to look quite seriously at how we could resolve all the bottlenecks for these businesses beyond just access to market, beyond just marketing or branding, because these were obvious ones. But we began to get into things like product development, strategy, Um, a little bit of customer service management and it's been it's been quite a journey I'll say it's
0: it's it's just amazing to hear right like I mean, we are a producer nation. We are a maker nation, and on all these this, yes. this heritage that we have of of making these like absolutely stunning things. And and I haven't discovered most of them. Like I'm starting to find out stuff from Baulput and all this stuff because I got married and I got sent stuff from all these all these regions. And I'm like, holy shit, we have these kinds of cardigans, and it's it's incredible. Yes. But you know, like one thing that I've always found interesting in in this market is, I. I I don't think that it needs to be seasonal. And I think that retail is evolving. Mass retail eventually will evolve as well. I think we're going away from fast fashion and we're going into more narratives and more storytelling and more smaller brands that, or at least that have the image of a smaller brand that can have that Mm -hmm. direct kind of relationship with the customer. And what what I think the mistake has always been with the craftsmen, not a lot of mistake on their part. It's not an understanding that it's, it's not the fact that it's like six seasons or whatever. It's more, yeah. how do I get the platform to have that direct relationship with the customer? They don't necessarily yeah. need to have something that's that's brand new or in the latest fashion. It's about the storytelling mm. that gets lost because we sure. silo them, right? And I think platforms like yourselves bring that story up and center. And it's not a very easy thing that you're doing either because you have a marketplace. You have like your, your supply yes. and you have your demand and like your, your, your makers and then, and then your customers. And how you're able to do that is, I think, extremely important because a lot of people try to do this and, and, and usually because of the effort that this takes, fail. Um, and I love what you've been able to do. And I'd like to kind of, actually, one, idea I want to outline the fact that, okay, the, the, coming back to Lahore, and one of my favorite brands is this girl. I think she's a girl or she might, I don't know how old she is, but she's amazing. Uh, I mean, I, I absolutely love her work. This girl called uh, Zora Arman. Um, she makes oh, the most yeah, beautiful jewelry. Incredible.
1: And I love her.
0: You know, and amazing aesthetics, understands yes. the kari good, works with the kari good, is the designer yeah. and the focus and her, her sense of, of e-commerce and all of that stuff. And Absolutely. the way she works is I think incredible and, and using Instagram as a platform, but then also working with, with the, the makers. So I think there, there is a possibility of someone being able to kind of make this into a brand. And I think you are doing this for so many people and it's so important uh, in a place like this. But what I'd be curious to kind of learn about is how in a space like this, how do you get the first thousand craftsmen or makers and how do you get the first thousand customers?
1: So I think that's that's a really interesting point. A, I adore Zora and we work with her and I love her stuff. She's so talented and I think she's absolutely the kind of image of the maker that people in Pakistan do not think of when they think yeah. of the making. So everybody always thinks of some little old man sitting with his little hammer under the side <laughs> <sun laughs> <in the laughs> yeah,
0: like, l- yeah, that kind of thing.
1: Absolutely, so I think it's really, Interesting, you raised two points which I want to address. One, I think this concept of the creative economy, as it's now called globally, has really evolved. So when we talk about makers, we tend to think of only traditional rural makers, right? Who absolutely have their space and need to be more valued and need to be more seen and need their stories told because people have a lot of misconceptions and misunderstanding about their lives and their work and their art, right? And we don't know how to value it properly. But equally, we don't understand that there is an entire, entire generation of modern makers in Pakistan. So we don't have fab labs, but we absolutely have pockets of incredibly innovative thinking and making and producing, and some very clever, talented people who often do not. So when you have the way we kind of treat the space is that lok hai or each pith high and anti business. There's kind of that's the narrative, right? And you miss. So much when that's your only narrative. Um, And I think that's, as you said, that's the gap that we're trying to bridge with our storytelling. We want people to understand the making process, what goes into it, why it's valuable. Uh, But, and I forgot the second point you were
0: making, Amman. How do you get the thousand customers? How do you get the customers and how do you get the makers? Like that. the technical part. Ah, yes.
1: So that's our secret sauce, quite honestly. And I think it's really interesting that you said a lot of people have tried and they have failed and there's, that's the reason for it. I think Ange and I would not have been this successful. if We had not put in a decade each into the sector, working directly with artisans in the field, understanding their issues, doing the research, doing the work, trying different models. Uh, we were lucky enough to do it without our own money. So we worked this with our job, right? So we got to experiment yeah. uh, with in different projects. And we got to learn so much from international kind of speakers and communities and experts. And, I think that was really amazing um, because to do this as a startup, and I think that's one of the reasons so many startups fail in this space because they don't understand, some of them do well at understanding the consumer motivations or what the consumer want, but hardly any of them understands where the artisan or the makers or the small businesses that you're working with come from and what is their motivation and what do they actually want. Because you can't just go in and tell somebody, and I think this is a very popular solution in Pakistan, particularly as it applies to traditional makers or small businesses. And I'm going to say that, especially if they're women-run, that people love to go tell them, here's a solution of marketplace and we're going to do this, and this is going to revolutionize your life. We never go in with that kind of messaging. Um, and in terms of finding the first thousand, when we started, we had a database of 30,000 the day we started. Wow. So that was never our problem. And again, I think it just comes from having put in the work, really knowing it was a very data-based approach. We didn't just get up one day and say, Ooh, I think I want to be a tech entrepreneur. What a fun thing to do. Let's go ahead and do that. And we didn't, we really did this because we saw this problem that had existed for a very long time and people were trying to do it through the development lens, but they weren't looking at a commercial lens because that's an other kind of problem with, the not-for-profit sector, that they don't commercialize products. I completely
0: agree. And I have a big issue with that. Like I, I, I don't like when people take grants because at the end that, that just makes you lazy. Like I, for me, I find that, that just that you, need to, you need to create a sustainable business model that does not rely on grants for it to be a long-term focused project because that money will run out. But if you're sustainable, then you don't rely on anything anymore.
1: Well, right. oh, I have two things to say to that. One, I'm not opposed to grants because I think when it comes to particularly social causes, sometimes you need the grants to kickstart it. Would Ange and I have this 10-year database that we do? Would we know all these people without all that, all those grants that finance those projects that we did? Of course we wouldn't. We would be like every other tech bro who comes in and say, yo, I'm bringing the Kusat online we are not like that because we have the advantage of having used those grants or being part of their projects. But I think I take your point but about the commercialization aspect. I think a lot of not-for-profits so or the traditional development space does shy away from that because that is not their expertise. That is not what they're designed to do. When something yeah. isn't designed to achieve a particular outcome, it would be astonishing if it did. Um, And at the end of the day, there are very, very clear KPIs and indicators against which you have to deliver projects, despite popular notions about how the development sector works. There are tons of audits from finance to performance to so it's not just you can just you can't just come in and be like, "All right, we're going to open a shop because the other problem is that I think and this is pervasive thinking in Pakistan. Is that if you and you've seen the example of that, I think, in terms of responses to business messaging during the COVID period. So businesses that tried to hard sell were often hit back with severely severe backlash, almost being trolled online, being told, yeah. because people just have one understanding of what it means to be in business. It means you're a state and you're out to exploit everybody. Yeah they don't really have a fully nuanced understanding of the multiple layers of how this com- business community operates and how something can have a social impact as well as be commercially viable, as you said, and self-sustain itself. Yeah. Um, so I think until that changes, you're not going to see too many players in this space. Um, and the other problem with the space is that it requires a lot of patience.
0: Yeah. It requires passion. patience and understanding. And, and also, sharing that knowledge, right? Like job it, where there is that lack of understanding from people where they're yes. like, you know, you're just out to get me and you're just like exploiting yes. people taking and me taking money from me. Like there, there needs yes. to be that dialogue where you change that narrative that people have that mistrust that people have. And I think that will take years um, and people like yourselves that are, that are going to be establishing that narrative, right? That, that are going to be building that trust and e-commerce so is another is game altogether.
1: Cool. And I think one of the things that I'm hoping has happened in the crisis is that people have also begun to, because I think you have phases, right? Like much like with any kind of tragedy, you have your phases of grief where there's first denial and then you you know, work yeah. your way through acceptance. So I think we've seen that kind of in, at a public scale with COVID, of course. I don't know where we are this on the scale. Don't ask me that. But we're somewhere. <laughs> we're somewhere. But what I think is really, really interesting for me, what would be a really big win would be to see that people have begun to realize that small business, because there is this whole narrative of shop local, shop small, uh, support your local businesses and all of that, because people realize that when you shut down these businesses, who are often operating quite precariously on the edge of economic circles, You lose the vibrance in your society, of course, but you lose employment. You lose tons and tons of employment. And I think the craft sector has always been underrated because people don't realize how many people it employs. So as per our, and I'm gonna use official figures here, not the fact that I think they're hideously underrated. So even if you go by the absolute official data, 15% of the entire population of Pakistan is employed by craft. So when you look at that number, and if you care about people and you care about, you know, gentler, more radical, planet-friendly ways of making, and you—I mean—you hear all of these insta-bloggers now going on about how shop and save the planet, and everybody's interested in climate change and you know, uh, reducing your carbon footprint and all of that. But when you look at such an obvious, simple solution, which is literally in your backyard—whether it's buy your local produce or buy your local fabrics—that people seem to miss somehow.
0: No, it's, it's uh, I love it, you know, like it, it, it's, it's great to hear someone else say these things, it's brilliant. So now, how would you kind of, have you guys raised funding at all or did you bootstrap this until today?
1: So we bootstrapped for the longest time. Uh, the first two years, it was just an e-commerce platform and we were, to be honest, both of us were still consulting in mainstream kind of development space. Um, I'm still actually doing that. Currently I'm working on a very exciting project that looks at the intersection of gender, economic resilience and fragility in the light of COVID. Right, and I'm very excited about that. And I'm excited about that because obviously it feeds my soul. I love data, but also I'm excited because that will help me run poly in an even more nuanced way. So we're constantly feeding poly. Sometimes we're not able to do it directly through poly, but we're able to do it through our other work. But I think, What did change for us, and it's not something anybody in the tech sector loves to hear, but I'm going to say it, it's an unpopular view. We realized that we were doing pop ups. So our model was very like, oh, we'll be like bonobos or hamlo pop ups. But it was really expensive to set up the pop ups, to train the teams, to run them, especially because, you know, so we'd have one in Islamabad for a few months, then we'd move to Lahore, then we'd move to Karachi. It was really hard to do this. And this is two years ago when we were a team of just three and a half people. Um, We're still only seven, by the way. So we're not a very large team, but um, totally believe in the whole lean team uh, ideology. I don't believe in large organizations at all. But um, as a result, we we realized that the cost of doing those uh, pop-ups were so high, but the sales that we would get from being in a physical space, we're incredible, and we're actually beating our e-commerce numbers. So the problem in Pakistan is that because most handmade products, uh, the makers are not known. So they're not as well-recognized as some of our larger brands. So you put, like, and I think it's really interesting, this is what the entire industrial revolution was based on. It's not just our people that they really just want to buy from Kadi because Kadi's a recognized brand. No, it's because it's based on that model that you will get a standard product. Which There's SOPs in place, right? You know, yeah. And it's, you know what the size is, you know what you can expect it to look like. If you are not happy, there is a physical space. So there is the possibility that you can return it, that you can sue them, that you can possibly kick up a fuss on you know, social media. But the problem with a small scale maker sitting somewhere in a city far away from you is, you often don't even know they exist. And even if somebody's bringing them online, you don't trust them. You don't trust the product because you know each one is made individually by hand. So I think that's a big problem with e-commerce and our particular segment. So we felt we needed a brick and mortar space. And that's when we started fundraising, to be honest. Um, And we were able to raise a convertible loan, not a very large one, but just enough to get us a physical space in Lahore, which is where we are now, year two in August. So we finished two years in August in Y Block. Um, and yeah, so that's where we are. And it's been the best decision ever. Um, I cannot say this. It's helped our e-commerce numbers grow. It's helped our brand grow. It's really helped us showcase so many more producers. We currently work directly with a thousand artisans and we service 89 small businesses. Wow. And
0: have you seen a... A difference in appreciation and and understanding with your clientele because of the physical store?
1: Absolutely. I think when they, so we have these little stories all over the store. So they're these little placards that you can read. Um, You can't force people to absorb stories, is something that we learned very quickly because initially, because we're so passionate about it and because we genuinely enjoy those stories, genuinely care about them, I struggle with this a lot. I find it hard sometimes to understand that the Most of the people just want a beautiful product that they can buy at a certain price. They don't want to get into how it was made and they're not interested in the whole lullaby. And that's fine. So we've placed it strategically throughout our website as well and throughout our stores. If you want to engage with that content, it's there. If you don't care and you just want to buy a mug and leave, that's fine too. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons for us to step away and be like, you make that choice. There for you that's awesome
0: because there are different kinds of customers right and and for me it's just like doing research on direct-to-consumer brands and just brands in general that are that are doing really well across the world for me it's, it's just looking at the narratives that people are talking in, about and what like the gen z and the millennials kind of uh, connect with right and and really yeah. we, we really need to be looking at that and understanding e-commerce in that way if we want things to grow and grow sustainably Has it ever been?
1: Absolutely. And I think that in person, so there's a, sorry, I was just saying there's a physicality to our product. So, and I believe this, I believe something which is made by hand has a soul. And sometimes you can't experience that soul online. And we're a particularly tactile people. We like the physicality of things. Look at our entire culture. It's based around people meeting, sitting together, experiencing yeah. sound, voice, smell, touch. And I think that is still how we like to shop. Or products of this kind. I completely agree.
0: Omni, um, if you could tell me about one of the most difficult and one of the most rewarding periods in your journey?
1: Oh gosh, okay. Um, so it's hard for me to pinpoint, like, you know, to look back almost. I feel like I need to do that when I'm 85. But, um, I think the rewarding part is absolutely working with creative people, young people, um, and in all kinds of contexts. If I can give you an example, we're currently doing some work with an Afan refugee community in Karachi. Unfortunately, it's been, the manner in which we're working with them has to evolve quite dramatically because of COVID, obviously. but just working with those young girls whose experience of our city, of our people, of our culture is so different to our own, who've been born and raised here, but are not from here, not accepted from here. They're still refugees, even though they're third gen. It's been such a humbling experience. And I always find that when I work with communities and particularly with women. So a lot of our work, I should say this, is 75% of our work is with either women makers or women owners. And that's a bias that I... have really admit we have it's not that we go out of our way to exclude men so if you apply you're a man and i think you learn so much there's so much to learn so much wisdom i would call it they're with there these are they're almost ecologies that we're unaware of within these communities that we're losing we're not documenting them we're doing we're an oral tradition, and we're doing such a poor job of handing all our stories, all our culture down, that I find these encounters always enrich me. I come out of it a better person, always. Um, but in terms of the challenge, I guess it's just this, the scale of the work, I think is the biggest challenge. you know, I think sometimes it's hard not to get to be working with 10,000 artisans. I want to be working with fifty thousand artisans. I want to be I mean, you know, I remember and in front of an investor group. Um, we were talking about Fab India and we were talking about Gooder. We were talking about how old we said, hey, there's no reason this can't happen in Pakistan and why isn't it happening? Um, it's still a question that I, I ask. I feel that uh, we have so many examples just across the border that we could look at, and sometimes that can be frustrating. That's a very real challenge for me, but I have to recognize that we're at a very different stage in our development from other economies, and we just have to take it a day at a time.
0: that's, I think it's, it's so, again, it's so important, you know, that, that documentation and that, that level of work that you're doing, I think is, is, is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, my next question for you is, what are, like, what is something that has come out of the data that you, so, like, that you take in? that you didn't anticipate finding out about Pakistan or about, about the makers? Or that about your It's really question.
1: interesting when, hmm, I think what's, so I'll address that in two parts. So I think what's been really interesting for me in Pakistan has been, I mean, obviously we were already in the maker space. I was in there for almost eight and a half years before we started Poly. Um, so I wasn't as surprised by knowledge within the makerspace. I'll just, I'll just talk about one quick story. I think people talk about the importance of design and globally, that's uh, an understanding that uh, craft activists have that, you know, you have to modernize design and you're always almost feeding this insatiable monster called the market. Mm -hmm. And I think what's been kind of a really important process for me, and I mean, definitely came from that background, you know, doing all these projects, looking at developing markets, developing pro-poor markets. And there's so many ways in which people put it, working on value chains and supply chains and all of that. But I think what's been particularly interesting for me and has taken me a few years is also to give pause and understand that, yes, while something has commercial value, things have value beyond that. And processes have value beyond that. And that is where their true value lies. And I think sometimes we forget I mean, I definitely forget sometimes, is that the economy was there to serve the people and the planet, not the other way around. And I can't think of a better time to be making this statement than the current crisis, because you constantly hear about governments and politicians talking about economy versus people's health or lives. And in some cases, yeah. And I think it's important to understand the economy was made for people, and There has to be, and then there's this other push, right? The other push is towards, and it's an important one, it's a push towards a digital economy or a digital world or a digital marketplace. But we forget two things in Pakistan when we do this, that a lot of our artisans or small-scale producers are still very much operating in non-digital, non-modern and analog ways. And they have every right to an emerging future that you know, does not commodify heritage at the risk to their cultures or to their environment and does not cause social justice issues as much as somebody who is sitting in a mainstream city and developing, I don't know, AI solutions to help crises. And, and the other thing we forget, I think, is that how gendered this space is. And I think there's just one statistic If I may, I did confess to being a data obsessed freak (laughs) at the beginning, didn't I? But I love data because it's, I did, Um, 39% of women in Pakistan have a cell phone versus 93% of men. And I think that's a very important statistic to keep in mind because we're not talking about smartphones. We're literally just talking about cell phones, which means that they have access to a telephone line and they have active text. And I think people sometimes forget that a lot of makers and small businesses and artisans and whatever you want to call them are kind of within this space and then because we focus on women you can see the gendered impact there and there's a lot of critique about wanting to bring everybody online you know there's a lot of interest right to bring artisans online directly without looking at safety issues harassment issues without looking at their security of their data of their personhood of their craft And I just feel like we as a people sometimes are in such a rush to get to the solution that we don't want to go through the pains of the process. And yes, anything which is too fast is just not going to work. And in terms of the consumers, I think consumers in Pakistan have come a long way. Um, They're really smart. You've got, you know, you've got a population which is 61% of our population is, a young population like a super young population and they're smart they're connected they're learning from the world they care about these issues and i think what what i'm hoping to see in the next five to ten years is a market that's going to question things like labor rights you know movements like fashion revolution have so much traction globally where people are asking hashtag who made my clothes yeah there's art march happening as well It's awesome to see Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think we're going to get faster and we're going to have fairer systems, fairer labor systems, fairer compensation systems, fairer value systems as a result of this. At least that's my hope.
0: This is awesome. Um, Amne, I have one last question. I know that we're going longer than we had planned, but one last question for you. If you could describe three of the most important lessons that you've learned on your journey so far.
1: Ooh, okay, hmm. I mean, I'm not very good with like, you know, pity stories that end with clear biblical lessons, um, and I think, you know, I'm, I have to be honest and say that like most of us, I'm kind of just flailing around, still learning and trying to understand how I can do better, but if I can, I've been using this period when we've all been working from home much more to read more than I usually get the luxury to and there's a couple of things that I think have really struck with me as key points to think about. I don't know if they count as lessons, but they're kind of important to me right now. So I've always been a big proponent of, you know, live your life as you want to see others living your life. So, you know, uh, walk the talk, etc. So as you would expect, I compost, I eat organic, you know, stuff that you yeah. would expect from somebody who's clearly running a hippie dippy business. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always thought that was good enough, you know, that, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do this. I'm going to raise my kids this way. We're going to run my household this way. I'm going to, when I give a gift, I'm going to, I make sure that it's based in intention, etc. But I've come to realize, and I think this is just part of growing up, that while individual choices are very important because they inform who you become and the aura that you have and the energy that you put out in the world, it's not enough. And I think, Nothing exemplifies that more than the Black Black Lives Matter movement. You know You need something almost at a global scale if you're looking at systemic change. And I think where you need systemic change, it's sometimes unfair. and I think you see that example particularly within the climate movement, where you know individuals are made to feel that you know, if you stop buying plastic, I mean please stop buying plastic, by the way. I'm not suggesting that you should. But you know, if you stop using plastic straws, the oceans would be safe, but really it's not our individual choices which are causing most pollution, it's our choices at the government level, at the industry level, at the large industry level that are causing most of the problem. And the problem with telling people that their individual choices are enough means that they don't organize, right? That they don't think about bigger change. So that's one of the things that I've been beginning to think of. But equally, and I'm gonna kind of flip back and say something the opposite, I do think that small examples inspire big change. And whether that's the example of, um, you know, Aurat March with a small movement. I think you brought that up. It's just a small bunch of women who got together. And I think you're already looking at how it seems to have shaken people to the core, okay. some in a good way, some in a horrified bad way. But the point is sometimes small examples can result in large radical change. Um, And the other thing, and I think this is a principle that I've kind of lived by my whole life is be authentic. Don't be scared to be yourself and just trust your gut. Um, Oftentimes, I think particularly as social entrepreneurs, um, and I think as women entrepreneurs, we're kind of pushed and told this is the right decision. This is how you're supposed to run an e-commerce business. This is how you're supposed to run a business, period. You need to have a particular template and you need to project your business five years forward and while all of those tools are fantastic and they're great i think if it's something that it's not comfortable some kind of decision or partnership or association is not making you comfortable it's not right for you and there's nothing wrong with trying to live by your values and politics. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think people are so scared of that, you know? I mean, as Poly, we could have 189 brands that we're working with, nothing is stopping us, except the fact that we have certain values attached to our business, and we try and make sure that the brand partners we work with also have the same values. They could be simple things like, you know, Original design, so you're not copying somebody else. Mm -hmm. Fair pay, so you're not exploiting somebody in your chain. Simple principles that probably don't mean very much at the consumer end today. And we don't make a big thing of it at the consumer end. So it's not part of our marketing. It's not like, oh, if you buy from Polly, you're buying fair trade. I don't like to use labels. But it's important to me. It means I, as a business, am very secure that I know I'm doing the right thing for myself and for my community.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any comments your feedback, please do send them my way. Mera direct email address Ahmad at Caravan.vc. dot vc or now you can information hasil kar sakte on our website which is www.caravan.vc or on Instagram. Um, our handle is at caravan Until next time, Khuda hafiz.